Section 30 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Catherine of Braganza, Chapter 3, Part 2. Catherine's devotion to her own religion had prompted her to bestow a part of her royal manor at Hammersmith to found a convent for nuns, but secretly because of the penal statutes, which prohibited every institution of the kind. The tradition of the present Benedictine ladies of the convent at Hammersmith is that Catherine of Berganza first sent for a sisterhood of nuns from Munich, whom she established in that house, which was supposed to be a boarding house for the education of young ladies of the Roman Catholic persuasion. They did not venture to wear the conventual dress and veil, or any distinctive costume, but contented themselves with a strict observance of their vows and the rules of their order. They were in some peril and considerable alarm during the persecution caused by the perjuries of Titus Oates and Bedloe, but escaped attack. If the queen had been suspected of founding a convent in England, there is no telling to what extent popular prejudice would have been excited against her and her protégés. They were the first nuns who settled in England after the extension of Queen Elizabeth. Catherine's principal advisor in this alarming crisis was Count Castel Malor, a noble Portuguese exile who had taken refuge in England after incurring the ill will of the reigning sovereign of Portugal, Don Pedro, by his fidelity to his old master, Don Alfonso. His prudent counsels were so salutary to the queen at the time of her great danger that she bestowed such substantial proofs of her gratitude on him as enabled him to retrieve his ruined fortunes by the purchase of a new estate, to which, out of compliment of her, he gave the name of Santa Catarina. She sent an express to her royal brother, Don Pedro, telling him of the predicament in which she stood and entreating his protection in case of her life being put in jeopardy. Catherine at that time anticipated nothing less than that the Parliament would bring her to the block, like King Charles I, and this fear she expressed in her letters to the king her brother, who is said to have exerted himself in her behalf. But it was not till 1680 that he sent a special envoy, the Marquez de Arruches, to assure her of his brotherly affection and support under any troubles that might befall her, and with instructions to interpose for her protection if required. Her persecutors showed themselves more in earnest. On the 28th of November, Bedloe delivered his depositions against Her Majesty, in writing, to the House of Commons. Then Oates advanced to the bar, and raising his voice, exclaimed, I, Titus Oates, accuse Catherine, Queen of England, of high treason. Or rather, according to his way of pronouncing the words, I, Titus Oates, accuse Catherine, Queen of England, of high treason. The members, not in the secret, were paralyzed with astonishment and remained speechless, while those under whose encouragement the meaner villain played so bold a part, took advantage of their consternation to vote an address to the king for the immediate removal of the queen and her household from Whitehall, and some proposal that she shall be forthwith committed to the tower. The peers refused to concur in the unconstitutional resolution of the commons, to treat their queen as a convicted traitress, till they found more conclusive evidence of her guilt than the incredible depositions of such men as Oates and Bedloe, and contented themselves with appointing a committee to investigate the charges, and to state their reasons for opposing the precipitate vote of the commons. 
Shaftesbury, with two of his creatures, in defiance of common decency, protested against this equitable and prudent mode of treating the question. From the moment that Bedloe had denounced the Queen's servants as the murderers of Sir E. Godfrey, and named Her Majesty's Palace of Somerset House as the scene of the tragedy, the King perceived there was a conspiracy in agitation against her, a conspiracy proceeding from no ordinary cobble. He could not but remember the pertinacity of Shaftesbury in urging the divorce question, even against his express declaration that it was against his conscience. And as every fresh coil in this volume of iniquity unfolded, he significantly repeated, I believe they think I have a mind for a new wife, but I will not suffer an innocent woman to be wronged. In the commencement of the business, he made the queen return to Whitehall, and by treating her with the most decided marks of attention and respect, demonstrated his intention of acting as her protector. The king told me, says Burnett, that considering his great faultiness towards her, he thought it would be a horrid thing to abandon her. If the king had given way in the least, observes the historian of the plot, Queen Catherine had been very ill-used, for the plotters had reckoned on his weakness in regard to women, and flattered him with hopes of having an heir to inherit his dominions. Charles disappointed these calculations by the indignation with which he met their calumnies against his wife. He ordered Oates into confinement, and placed a guard about him, to prevent his receiving fresh lessons from abler villains than himself. But their clamors compelled him to withdraw this wholesome restraint, and restore him to his former liberty and power of disturbing the public peace. Five of the principal Catholic lords were sent to the tower on his impeachment. Thirty thousand persons of the same denomination were driven out of London, and every day witnessed fresh arrests, and at length fresh executions of innocent persons, whose lives were remorselessly sacrificed against all law and justice, merely to serve as preludes to the fall of the Queen and the Duke of York, for whose especial ruin this storm had been conjured up. I dined, says Sir John Raresby, with that excellent man, Dr. Ganning, Bishop of Ely. The famous Dr. Oates was at table. No very high proof of the excellence of the bishop. This man, flushed with the thoughts of running down the Duke of York, expressed himself of the duke and royal family in terms that bespoke him a fool or something worse, and not contented with that, he must rail at the queen mother and her present majesty. In this strain, he did hurry on, and not a soul dared to oppose him, lest he should be made out a party to the plot. But unable to bear with the insolence of the man, I took him to task, to such purpose, that he flung out of the room with some heat. The bishop told me, that such was the general drift of his discourse, and that he had sometimes checked him for the indecency of his talk, but to no purpose. Religious zealots, with heated imaginations and polemic passions, always in a state of excitement, might possibly give implicit credit to the depositions of Oates and Bedloe, that the credulity of the simple unreflecting classes was thoroughly imposed on, is certain. But who can suppose that men of strong intellect, sound judgment, and habitual caution, like Lord William Russell, and the other leaders of the exclusion faction, could for one moment believe such palpable absurdities? They could not, and they did not, but they made use of them as powerful political weapons against the queen and the duke, and they remorselessly hallooed the bloodhound on his prey. They assisted him with all the strength of their party, in hunting a succession of innocent persons to the scaffold, 
and voted him rewards for crimes which have left an indelible stain on the annals of our country. Several of these pretended patriots, such as Algernon Sidney and Hamden, had the bribes of France or of Holland in their pockets at this very time, for very deeply implicated were both Louis the Fourteenth and William of Orange in this iniquity, as the documents of the times will prove. Although the king had foiled the attempt to brand the queen with treason by raising the shield of his prerogative before her, and had refused to compromise her dignity as his consort by permitting any investigation of her conduct to take place, Bedloe persevered in his attempts to fix the murder of Sir Edmundbury Godfrey on her servants. He now pointed out Miles Prance, a silversmith, who was employed to clean the plate belonging to Her Majesty's Chapel in Somerset House as one of the murderers. This wretched creature was hurried to Newgate, terrified and cajoled alternately, till he was induced, on promise of pardon, to confess the charge and give up his accomplices. He named three of the inferior domestics in Her Majesty's service, who protested their innocence in vain. They were tried and condemned to death. Struck with remorse, he demanded to be brought before the king and council, and throwing himself on his knees, he protested, that he had accused them falsely, for he knew nothing of the murder. He was hurried back to Newgate, chained to the floor of the condemned cell, and was driven partially to madness by terror and the practices of his keeper, Boyce, who told him constantly, that unless he agreed with Bedloe's evidence, he should be hanged, and at last got him to confess a conspiracy for the assassination of Lord Shaftesbury and many other things, which he afterwards disowned but finally became a thoroughgoing witness against all those accused by Oates. The unfortunate men, Hill, Green, and Barry, the last of whom was a Protestant, were all executed, protesting their innocence. The horror of the queen at the treatment of her poor servants may be imagined, but though assured by the Duke of York that the Parliament intended her and himself for the next victims, she preserved a courageous calmness, and was satisfied that the king believed her incapable of the crimes with which she was charged. Charles would not suffer her to be driven from the sanctuary of his palace, and treated her with greater kindness than he had done for many years. It was probably in compliance with his desire that Catherine, on being permitted to choose nine ladies out of her household, who should be exempted from taking the test, enforced on all the rest, after causing eight of those who were of the Roman Church to be chosen by lot, named the Duchess of Portsmouth as the ninth, without subjecting her to the chance of being excluded, although her dislike of this woman was deservedly great. The Duchess had been appointed as one of the ladies of her bedchamber, with an implied understanding that she was not to intrude her services on the Queen. One day, however, she insisted on waiting on Her Majesty at dinner, and conducted herself so impertinently that the queen was greatly discomposed, and at last, unable to control her feelings, burst into tears. Her audacious rival, with the insolence common among persons of her calling, uttered some audible ejaculation of contempt, and laughed behind her fan, which provoked a reproof from the king. Among the many painful apprehensions with which Catherine was assailed during the inauspicious year of 1679, was the renewal of attempts to dispute the lawfulness of her marriage by Shaftesbury's old project of establishing the pretense that the Duke of Monmouth was the legitimate son of the king. The health of the Duke was publicly drunk several times by the title of Prince of Wales, and it was reported that four witnesses could be brought forward to prove the king's marriage with Lucy Walters. 
the king to satisfy the queen and his brother called a council together for the purpose of contradicting this and made a solemn protest that he had never been married to any other woman than to her present majesty queen catherine he subsequently published a proclamation to the same effect catherine was not permitted to enjoy much repose i believe writes the duke of york to his treacherous son-in-law the prince of orange you will very soon see the queen fallen upon with intent to take her life a few days before the date of this letter the duke of monmouth's cook a man of the name of buss deposed before the secret committee at the head of which was shaftesbury that being at windsor in september last he heard one hankinson who had belonged to the queen's chapel desire antonio the queen's confessor's servant to have a care of the four irishmen he had brought along with him who he said would do the business for them this business was of course the king's murder the committee with consummate art affected to treat this matter lightly in order to induce the informer to make it public as oates had formerly done his deposition by going and swearing it before a city magistrate the recorder then antonio was examined and though he denied having used such words or knowing anything of the irishmen or the business for which they were conjured up he was committed for high treason nothing came of the charge for on one point the king so indolent and pliant on everything besides was positive he would not permit the queen to be compromised in any way by sanctioning inquiries on charges that were ostensibly fabricated as pretexts to swear away her life the king observes james in his journal seemed highly sensible of so injurious an aspersion on so virtuous a princess however nothing was done to vindicate her in such awe did his majesty stand of the popular rage whose drift being to disappoint the duke's succession there was no way of compassing it but either ruining him or the queen it was moved in the extraordinary meeting of the privy council on the twenty fourth of june that it would be best for the queen to stand her trial but the king who knew it would not be a fair one would not permit it the murderous designs of the party against the queen is plainly indicated by this now forgotten rhyme of the lampoon writer marvel with one consent let all her death desire who durst her husband's and her king's conspire the acquittal of sir george wakeman and the jesuits who were indicted with him on the charge of uniting with the queen to poison the king by exposing the shameless perjuries of oates and bedloe acted as the first check to the current successful villainies of these infamous men they were nowise daunted but daringly accused lord chief justice scroggs to his face of partiality because departing from his usual practice of browbeating and intimidating the accused he had given a charge to the jury in their favor the affectionate attention with which charles now treated his persecuted consort is thus sneeringly noticed by the countess of sunderland in a letter to her brother-in-law at the hague the king and queen who is now a mistress the passion her spouse has for her is so great go both to newmarket the eighteenth of september together with their whole court charles had become thoughtful and melancholy and passed his time a good deal alone at windsor amusing himself with fishing and solitary walks it was suggested to him by his counsel that his life was in danger but he treated the notion with contempt he had much to render himself miserable in reflection of what he was and what he might have been had he not wasted the glorious opportunities that had been given him 
he had disappointed the expectations of all who loved him and who had risked their lives and expended their fortunes in his cause he had lavished that wealth on the associates of his vices that might now have placed him in a position to enforce the administration of justice but like a ruined spendthrift he was ready to barter all the advantages that were his right for temporary supplies of money to propitiate an unprincipled faction he had permitted a number of innocent persons to be executed for impossible crimes and to please one bad woman that is nell gwynne he had restored buckingham to his confidence and at the persuasions of another that is the duchess of portsmouth he had admitted shaftesbury and his creatures into places which enabled them to abuse the regal power to the furtherance of their own ambitious purposes and to degrade himself into the office of their accredited instrument i never saw says sir william temple any man more sensible of the miserable condition of his affairs than i found his majesty but nothing moved me more than when he told me he had none left with him whom he could so much as speak of them in confidence since my lord treasurer's being gone this was danby a man every whit as false as the rest a few days before his intended journey to newmarket with the queen charles was seized with an intermittent fever of so malignant a character that his life was in danger great excitement was caused by this illness of the king which was according to the monomania of the period attributed to poison i believe yet writes lady sunderland that there is scarce anybody beyond temple bar that believes his distemper proceeded from anything but poison though as little like it as if he had fallen from a horse if the privy councillors pursues she had not used their authority to keep the crowds out of the king's chamber he had been smothered the bedchamber men could do nothing to prevent it on the first alarming symptoms of his malady charles ordered sunderland to summon the duke of york privately from brussels but before his arrival at windsor the danger was over as a grateful tribute to the skill of his physician dr mecklethwaite charles on the first symptoms of convalescence honored him with the accolade of knighthood at the time originally appointed his majesty went to newmarket accompanied by the queen and all the court his way of life there was little to the credit of a man over whom the shadow of death had so recently impended his proceedings are thus described by a contemporary he walked in the morning till ten o'clock then he went to the cockpit till dinner-time about three he went to the horse-races at six he returned to the cockpit for an hour only then he went to the play though the actors were but of a terrible sort from thence to supper then to the duchess of portsmouth till bedtime and so to his own apartment to take his rest during the king's illness the famous astrologer gadbury was applied to by the noted mrs sellier to cast his majesty's nativity which he not only declined to do but informed against his customer yet he afterwards in conjunction with an amateur wizard sir edward deering volunteered three political predictions on the fulfillment of which he was willing to stake all his professional skill these were as follows that charles the second after the burial of queen catherine would have a son by another wife who should be born after his death that louis the fourteenth would die in sixteen eighty two and lastly that the earl of shaftesbury would be beheaded three worse guesses were certainly never hazarded 
the death of the brave and virtuous the earl of ossory who at that time held the office of lord chamberlain to the queen was much lamented by her majesty especially at an epoch when she required the support of every man of honour in her service she wrote with her own hand the following gracious letter of condolence to his afflicted father on the irreparable loss my lord duke of ormond i do not think anything i can say will lessen your trouble for the death of my lord ossory who is so great a loss to the king and the public as well as to my own particular service that i know not how to express it but every day will teach me by showing me the want i shall find of so true a friend but i must have so much pity upon you as to say little on so sad a subject conjuring you to believe that i am my lord duke of ormond your affectionate friend catherine regina in addressing these unaffected expressions of sympathy to the afflicted parent of her chivalric chamberlain queen catherine departed from her established rule of never putting pen to paper except on matters of indispensable necessity when henry sidney some months previously to this event took leave of her majesty on his appointment as ambassador to the hague she desired him to tell the prince and princess of orange that she never writ any letters but she hoped he would make the best compliments he could for her this may appear somewhat cool considering the nearness of the connection but catherine was no dissembler and she had little reason to feel kindness for those who had encouraged the fabricators of the murderous false witness that had so recently been aimed against her life in the business of the popish plot catherine had probably pretty correct information of the share the prince of orange had in that great iniquity which he afterwards proclaimed to the whole world by pensioning the notorious tool of the exclusionist titus oates in august death delivered catherine from one of her false accusers bedloe he endeavored to support his part in the tragic farce in which he had been so prominent an actor to the last by sending for lord chief justice north and making oath that all he had deposed of the popish plot was true but as the judge was leaving the room he detained him and said he had somewhat to disclose to him in private and then in presence only of his wife and north's clerk he swore that the duke of york was guiltless of any design on the king's life though otherwise connected with the plot and of the queen against whom he had previously sworn point blank he now said that as far as he knew she was ignorant of any design against the king nor any way concerned in his murder nor otherwise than by her letters in the plot by consenting and promising what money she could to the introduction of the catholic religion nay it was a great while and made her weep before she could be brought to that this statement though even the dying words as ecard wisely observes of one hardened by many years of villainies must be cautiously mentioned was probably the real state of the case as regarded catherine she was a very cautious person and though passionately devoted even to bigotry to her own religion she was unlikely to rush into so many crimes and dangers for the furtherance of any visionary scheme her great object was to obtain acts of toleration for english catholics and she had good reason to know that the king was perfectly willing to oblige her in that particular he having a strong personal bias in favor of catholicism she loved him with the most unbounded affection and always cherished the hope of his reconciliation with the church of rome which she lived to see accomplished if her correspondence with the pope and the members of her own family could be laid open it would be found full of her hopes and prayers for his conversion to that creed 
her almoner, Cardinal Howard, and her secretary, Sir Richard Bellings, through whom these correspondences were carried on, were both involved in the accusations of Oates as accomplices in the Popish plot, and doubtless there was a secret pact of association in which all these persons were united for the support of their own religion, attended with some mysteries which gave rise to suspicions and misconstruction. A converted Jew, named Francisco de Feria, the interpreter of the late Portuguese ambassador, next pretended to take up the profitable business of informer, and accused that nobleman of having offered to employ him to assassinate Oates, Bedloe, and Shaftesbury. The enemies of the queen failed to make a case against her out of this improbable fiction. With all the excitement and anxiety she had suffered, it is not wonderful that Catherine was attacked with illness this autumn, yet she bore up under her trials with a quiet resolution and moral courage, worthy of the daughter of the liberator of Portugal. A daring blow was struck at her by Shaftesbury, November 17th, in the House of Lords, when the bill for the exclusion of the Duke of York being thrown out, this profligate politician moved, as the sole remaining chance of security, liberty, and religion, a bill of divorce, which by separating the king from Queen Catherine, might enable him to marry a Protestant consort, and thus to leave the crown to his legitimate issue. The earls of Essex and Salisbury, and the base Lord Howard of Escrick, immediately seconded this motion, but the king, however faithless he had been to Catherine, would not submit to have her torn from him by the murderous faction, who pursued her with such unrelenting malice. Nay, he showed such horror of the design, that he went himself from man to man, to solicit the peers to vote against the measure, that he might, if possible, stifle this wicked design in its birth the honorable feelings of British nobles were in truth against offering so great an injury to their innocent queen, and the project of dissolving her marriage with the king was once more abandoned and forever. Catherine was so little intimidated by the avowed hostility of those who had caused the lives of so many of her servants to be taken away, under pretext too absurd for credibility that she was present with her ladies at the trial of the venerable viscount stafford in westminster hall where a private box had been prepared for her accommodation it was no common tragedy that catherine witnessed when she saw this aged nobleman who was involved in the same accusation with herself of a design to overthrow the protestant religion and poison the king brought to the bar on his sixty-ninth birthday after a rigorous imprisonment of two years he and the four other Catholic peers had, in the boldness of conscious innocence, demanded the benefit of the habeas corpus act, namely, to be either brought to trial or discharged. Lord Stafford was selected for trial by the committee of prosecution, because from age and infirmity, and the nervous excitability of his temperament, he was less capable of defending himself. The unfortunate prisoner was assailed, on his way from the tower to Westminster Hall, by the pitiless rabble, with yells and execrations. A spirit equally ferocious was exhibited by many of the members of the House of Commons within the hall, so that the Lord High Steward was compelled to remind them that they were not at a theatre. Sergeant Maynard, who opened the case against him, began, with great unfairness, by appealing to the polemic prejudices of those by whom his fate was to be decided, by observing that there was no improbability that the Catholics should have devised this plot in order to propagate their religion, because the histories of all times and all countries, particularly our own, 
afforded many instances of such plots carried on by them, as in the reign of Elizabeth, when they expected a popish successor, and afterwards the powder plot. Queen Catherine must have been a woman of some firmness, to listen calmly to this ominous commencement, which showed how little justice might be expected by the accused. She, doubtless, sat with a painfully throbbing heart, while her own name was from time to time introduced by the perjured witnesses. The very first that was called, Smith, deposed, that when at home he read in Coleman's letters how the Duke of York, the Queen, and the Chief of the Nobility were in the plot. Oates repeated the tale of Sir George Wakeman's undertaking to poison the king, with as much audacity as if that gentleman had not been honorably acquitted of the charge. Her Majesty's almoner, Cardinal Howard, was also frequently named as implicated actively in the plot. Lord Stafford convicted the witness Dugdale of a slight mistake of three years in his statement, on which the Lord High Steward sternly checked the noble prisoner by saying, He must not make a strain. Is three years a strain? exclaimed the unfortunate peer with passionate emotion. Turbeville, another of the witnesses against him, swore that he proposed to him, when in France, to kill the king, and that he returned to England by Calais. Lord Stafford proved that it was by Dieppe. This discrepancy was treated as a matter of no moment. Plato has said that geography and chronology are the two eyes of history, Yet the judicial victims of the Popish plot persecutions were not permitted to controvert the perjuries of Oates and his accomplices by these important tests. Lord Stafford's counsel were not allowed to stand near enough to him to allow of a word being exchanged that was not audible to those who, in pleading against him, took the most unfair advantages. The trial lasted seven days, and the unfortunate old man complained sorely of his utter want of sleep during that period of agonizing excitement, and also of the cruel insults of the rabble who had pressed upon him. The lieutenant of the tower, on one occasion, called on Oates to keep them off. Oates replied, They are witnesses. The lieutenant said, Not half of them were, and bade him, Keep them down, on which Oates told him, he was only a jailer, and called him a rascal. The lieutenant retorted that if it were not for his cloth, he would break his head. This being reported in court, Sergeant Maynard said, it did not become the lieutenant for a word to tell Mr. Oates he would break his head. I should not deserve to be the king's lieutenant, responded the undaunted officer stoutly. If a man in another habit out of the court should call me a rascal, and I not break his head. Lord Stafford, in invalidating the testimony of Oates, laid great stress upon the fact that when he was asked before the Privy Council, at the time he made his first depositions, if he had anyone else in England to accuse, he replied, he had not. Yet he afterwards accused the Queen. Sir W. Jones, the Attorney General, endeavored to extricate Oates out of that dilemma by saying, that his accusation against the queen was not positive, and indeed he did not know at that time whether she were a person whom he might venture to accuse. The knowledge that her majesty had sufficient courage and strength of mind to sit by and hear everything that was said about herself had no doubt a very restraining influence on the tongues of some of the false witnesses who were confederated against her. Most agonizing it must have been to her to see the aged man fighting against such fearful disadvantages 
for the brief span of life that yet remained to him. The filial piety of the Marchioness of Winchester, who was seated near the axe-bearer, assisted her aged parent by taking notes for his defense, added to the tragic interest of the scene, and afforded the first example of an English lady rendering that service to a prisoner under such circumstances. Similar heroism, when practiced by Lady Russell, was deservedly applauded by the world. That admirable lady, however, incurred no peril by her conjugal devotion, while the Marchioness of Winchester was a marked person, having been previously attacked by Oates for taking notes in the gallery at Sir George Wakeman's trial for the information of her captive father, and she was grossly insulted by Sir W. Jones for her evidence, proving the discrepancies between Oates' deposition at that trial and at her father's on the subject dates. Lord Stafford vainly solicited the indulgence of a single day to prepare his defense. Worn out as he was, he was compelled to answer then or never. A verdict of guilty was returned against him, and he was doomed to die the horrible and ignominious death decreed to traitors. A majority of the peers interceded with the king to commute this sentence into decapitation. The pitiless city sheriffs, Cornish and Bethel, presented a petition to the House of Commons, intimating that the king had no right to mitigate the sentence. Lord William Russell was also so inhuman as to desire that all the unspeakable horrors of a traitor's death should be inflicted on the venerable victim, who had, to use Evelyn's expression, been condemned on testimony that ought not to be taken on the life of a dog. To his eternal disgrace, Charles signed the warrant for the execution of this unfortunate nobleman. A reaction of popular feeling had taken place in his favor, and when he made a protestation of his innocence on the scaffold, the spectators unanimously exclaimed, We believe you, my lord! God bless you, my lord! The executioner performed his office with hesitation and reluctance, and the descent of the fatal axe was echoed with a universal groan. End of section 30.